This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. All right, we do want to focus in on, of course, the virus today. Uh, we really have some highs and lows when it comes to COVID-19. We, of course, have talked about the COVID-19 vaccine being developed by Pfizer, uh, preventing more than 90% of infections in a study. So that is definitely the good, <clears throat> excuse me, the good news. The rough news, of course, being cases in the U.S. topping 100,000 for a fourth day, bringing the nation's total close to the 10 million mark. So a lot going on. Let's get to it with Dr. Josh Sharfstein, Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, of course, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Sharfstein joining us on the phone in Baltimore. So nice to have you here with us. So you wake up and see these headlines about Pfizer and you think what? That's great news. I mean, it's it's certainly um, great to see this kind of promising data. We know that it's got to be validated. People are going to look at it. We know there, you know, even has to be more safety data collected. But, you know, the big question before now was whether or not evidence of an immune response was really evidence that people wouldn't get the disease. And that answer appears to be yes, that the, the, the vaccine isn't just giving people antibodies, it's actually protecting them from getting sick. I mean, this is huge. This is massive. At the same time, we, we talked about this, Dr. Sharfstein, at the top of our broadcast, that a, an important development, right? It's kind of what we've all been working um, towards, but we kind of need to slow down because it, of course, means now we have to kind of make and produce and manufacture the vaccine and, and create the quantity that the world needs? Well, the first thing is to make sure the results bear out. You mm-hmm. know, there will be a chance for the Food and Drug Administration to really look at the data. There'll be an independent advisory committee that'll look at the data. Um, and, you know, that those are really important checks uh, to make sure that we're dealing with a safe and effective vaccine for the, for the population. Um, the good news is, though, that the company's already started making the, the vaccine. So it's not a case, typically, you might wait to see the review of the data and then you'd start making it for in quantity. But um, the companies here and the other companies too, they're making vaccine so that if it turns out the vaccine works, you know, they have it right away. And so the company's projecting maybe 10 million doses by the end of the year, which is, you know, it seems like a lot, but of course it's not enough for you know, the world or the United States, but it's a pretty good start. It's not 10 million doses two years from now. You know, they've really been working very hard to get this going. And so it creates, you know, the opportunity. The other, you know, part of the good news here is that the protein that is the target of the, you know, it's sort of the the key aspect of the vaccine um, is also targeted by other vaccines. So, I think there's some optimism that if this vaccine works, that the other vaccines, which are in late-age clinical trials, will also work. And that will mean we're not just dealing with scaling up one vaccine, but maybe a number of vaccines, which hopefully all will be very effective. 
Right. And and as you said, we need to get through all the safety steps to make sure that, I mean, key to this is people who want to take it. And I do wonder, the more that we explain, I mean, there are people who are just anti-vaccinations, and that's kind of a group that has felt that way before COVID. But there are people who, I think, because we've seen this process politicized, that it's it's made people a little bit nervous about taking it. You know, what confidence do you have in terms of the steps that are being taken on a safety level that ultimately the vaccines, vaccines that are out on the market will be safe ones and ones that should be taken by all Americans or those that, you know, as many as that can can be? Well, I think that the Food and Drug Administration put out some very reasonable standards for safety, and that's why the company is still collecting data for safety. Um, to, to really make sure there, there are at least a couple months of very good safety data showing a very safe vaccine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that does give me confidence. But it's also important to realize that vaccines are going to be given to a lot of people and there may be um, different kinds of safety uh, signals that come up over time. And so it's just as important to continue to monitor for safety and monitor for the data on effectiveness and be able to adjust the vaccine program as it changes over time. If you have very strong safety data at the beginning, it's going to be very helpful to saving lives, but you're still going to need to keep an eye on safety even as um, the, you know, the number of cases come down. We're going to do some news and come back, but just in about 40 seconds, is there anything in terms of vaccines given to older people versus younger people? Um, is there any difference in terms of the safety or the ability for an individual to, to deal with it? Does that have anything to do with the age? Well, that's a great question, and that's one of the reasons that the data really need to be reviewed carefully to look to see if there's a difference by age. Um, There haven't been trials in children yet, but, you know, um, people, younger adults versus older adults, it's a really important question because the older adults are really at risk for serious, at the highest risk for serious illness and death. And so that'll be what the FDA looks at. It'll be what the CDC looks at when they're determining the recommendations. And that's why it's, it's really important to realize that it's not just, you know, we have a vaccine or we don't have a vaccine, but all of these individual questions add up to a strong vaccine strategy. So in our first block, Dr. Sharfstein, we talked about really some of the positive news surrounding uh, the Pfizer developments today and the and to end a COVID-19 vaccine. On the flip side, because I feel like it's been a day of highs and lows, we're watching cases in the U.S. topping 100,000 for a fourth day, nation's total close to the 10 million mark. I was talking to, as I mentioned, um, the head of a pharmaceutical company saying, get ready for some pretty dark days come this winter here in the United States. How do you see the next few months playing out when it comes to COVID-19? Well, this is a really difficult time, and it's not just the number of cases. It's the number of hospitalizations. We have places in the country where there are no hospital beds for sick patients, and they're having to build new hospitals or airlift patients out. Those regions could grow. Um, the healthcare system could really uh, be pushed to the limit or past it in different parts of the country, and then deaths are increasing. So this is a really difficult time. I think the vaccine announcement, if nothing else, tells us that we're not um, stuck in this situation forever. The more vigilant we can be, the more we can do now to to fight against the virus, those are lives that we're saving. Because if we can get a safe and effective vaccine and be able to distribute it, um, then we want as many people to make it to that point as possible. So hopefully it is a little bit of the, you know, 
inspiration for people to continue to wear masks, to continue to distance, to protect themselves and others, to not go to big indoor parties. And, and, and if, if more people can realize, like, look, I, all I got to do is make it a few more months, um, you know, into 2021, and maybe we can all put this uh, behind us to a really robust vaccination effort, then um, this would, you know, will help people, I think, through this time. I can't tell you how many times I have that conversation at home um, with my daughter who's 17 and actually with family members who, you know, when we even think about doing something together, it's like, I've come this far. Why would I risk it at this point? Um, what is the difference about the cold, though? Does it make it tougher? I mean, obviously, it makes it tougher that we've got to be indoors, right? And if we're collecting indoors with other people, that it just increases our chances of potentially of getting COVID-19. But is there also something just about um, the virility of the virus of COVID-19 during colder weather? I think nobody really knows that for sure, but okay. probably there's something there. But the bigger issue is that people are together indoors. And we know now a lot about how the virus is transmitted. And, you know, a lot of people indoors without wearing masks, it's like rolling out the red carpet for the virus. And, you know, the, obviously the big problem with this virus is that it, can, it transmits when people don't know they're even sick. And so, you know, you can think you're totally fine. And lo and behold, you know, you've gotten a lot of people infected. I mean, we're now on our third outbreak at the White House Mm -hmm. where they're testing, you know, everybody all the time. And it's not helping because they weren't, I think, taking, you know, all the precautions in addition to doing the testing. So everybody's got to realize, like, not even a negative test should um, make you feel confident. Um, I know that there's some parties where people say, well, just get tested and come to the party. That is not a excuse to not wear masks would be distanced because people can really get sick there. You know, you mentioned the White House. You know, President-elect Joe Biden announced a new 13-member coronavirus task force. We heard about it um, and uh, earlier today and certainly over the weekend as well. That's January. And I do wonder what you're thinking about as you watch, because the federal government is so important in this process. And I know that there's, without getting political, concerns that we really haven't had um, an organized, you know, unilateral strategy when it came to COVID-19. Um, what needs to continue to happen until we get to the next administration? And what does the new administration need to make sure that they do come January? Well, I think right now, it's great that the president-elect has created a you know, scientific group that's going to not only advise him, but also help educate the public about the critical things that can be done to reduce the spread of the virus in this difficult time. I'd like to see a lot of cooperation um, between the transition and the administration. You know, I think that's going to be very important. We're really in a battle against the virus, and we you know, don't want to have a really abrupt, difficult transfer of power in the middle of all that because it'll just slow down what we can do to save lives. So I think that's going to be important. You know, the, the, the Biden transition has a series of priorities that are on its website about the coronavirus, including making sure there's enough protective equipment for people who are essential employees or in healthcare, making sure that there's a national testing strategy. Those are very good priorities. And I think um, the you know, the important thing is going to be to be prepared to start executing uh, those priorities as soon as they're able to take over. 
Yeah, it's certainly a full plate. Um, Dr. Sharfstein, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Dr. Josh Sharfstein, he's Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement, Director of the Bloomberg American Health Initiative at Johns Hopkins University, and of course, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So we are definitely starting to hear more about a Biden White House, the players involved, the people who may take some of the top spots of his administration. In the meantime, what might a Biden White House be like and what economic policies might he pursue? Well, Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor Peter Coy, he writes about that. He writes about Bidenomics and a return to normalcy. Let's get into it with Peter. He joins us on the phone from New Jersey. Also with us, Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. He's on the phone in Brooklyn. We're looking forward here, Joel. Trying to, um, and, and part of this was like you know we the the, the one of the scenarios that we had to uh, uh, kind of plan for last week was you know eventually and it ended up coming on Saturday. You know what 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 does this country look like under uh, President Elect uh, Biden, and and more specifically, what does it mean for business and the economy? And and for that, you know, Peter Coy. Um, you know, definitely raised his hand and said, I, I think I know. Uh, and we said, oh, please tell us. So, so Peter, what's your, what's your thesis for what Bidenomics means for America? Well, it comes out of what we know about Joe Biden, his long history in Congress and Senate, and his personality, uh, and the circumstances the country is in right now. So you, you extrapolate from all those things, and you come up with, with a fairly centrist person in a country that is divided, um, he did win, but uh, it, there are a lot of people, uh, the Republicans that are likely to control the Senate, and a lot of people out there who uh, voted for him, who mainly were voting against Trump and more for poli- personality reasons than policy reasons. So he doesn't have, like, a strong mandate, A. And, and the, let me do it uh, Biden's way, number one. And number two, um, number two is that, Even if he did want to advance a strong Democratic platform, Mitch McConnell is very likely to retain the position of Senate Majority Leader, won't let him, the same way he blocked Obama's agenda when Biden was the VP. So I got to say, Peter, love your story, as always. We always learn so much. But I, I do wonder, so as you point out, you know, a divided Congress and a Republican Senate with a Democrat in the White House could be good for the markets and corporate yeah, profits, right? right? But what does it mean for the economy and economic policies? Yeah, well, let's first start out with why the stock market uh, seemed to like it. Um, you would, might have thought that because the, ch- the chance of a strong stimulus faded a little bit, because uh, the Republican Senate might have given a big, uh, if, if uh, Trump had gotten reelected, might have uh, voted for a big package just to bolster their man, less likely to do so if it's a Biden White House. Uh, Similarly, there would have been a big package if Democrats had taken the Senate and Biden had won. So with divided government, you get probably less stimulus. So that's a short-term thing. But it could be that what was happening is the financial markets were looking ahead to the uh, prospect of smaller tax increase than they would have had if the Democrats had taken the Senate, which seemed like a real possibility for a while there. Peter, can we also talk about um, uh, taxes? Uh, what, what, yeah. should, uh, what should we uh, expect from Biden on that front? Well, well, we can say what he said he wants to do, which is uh, insulate people earning less than $400,000 a year from any tax increase. 
uh, and raised the corporate income tax rate, which was cut under the uh, Trump tax cut of 2017 from 35 down to 21. Uh, if they, the 35 rate was one of the world's highest. Well, there were a lot of loopholes in it that made it effectively lower than that, but still, that headline rate was quite high. At 21, it's, it's right in the ballpark, maybe even on the low side among the other rich uh, industrialized nations. Uh, Biden's talking about putting back up to 28 um, percent, so splitting the difference between the old one and the new one. Uh, he's also talking, by the way, for people in the New York metro area who are listening to this program, uh, lifting the cap on the uh, SALT uh, deductions to make it, that would be a well, break, break for people. Can I just say having, um, I'm embarrassed, but filing on extension, just getting it done, I, it'll be interesting to see if we have some changes and what, from one of those blue states where we yeah. were impacted, certainly when it came to some of those local taxes. You know, yeah. what's interesting is, you know, you say Trump did get a lot of things done, yeah, even did. if you didn't agree with how he did it. So what do we need to think about in terms of those things that he did get done? Well, um, one of the things he did was he got um, tougher on China mm. and the uh, obviously a lot of tariffs. And there are a lot of Democrats who think it was time to get tough on China. They thought the Obama administration, <laughs> which Biden worked for, of course, did not do enough. Uh, but they don't necessarily agree with the way Trump went about it. Um, for what, it, what Trump did was try to basically go it alone. So he didn't just take on China. He sort of took on the world. Mm. And that alienated a lot of allies, uh, the Japanese, the Europeans, who could have been on America's side presenting a united front against China. And so one of the things Biden is almost certain to do is to, uh, you know, bolster America's role in the World Trade Organization, uh, see about uh, entering multilateral trade deals, He's not likely to roll back the tariffs on China um, that Trump put on anytime soon because he would want to see, you know, you want to get something for any, anything you give back. Right. And China's not likely to budge a lot either. So don't, don't expect the temperature uh, to cool a whole lot between the U.S. and China under a Biden administration, let alone the issue that the Democrats will push a lot harder on the human rights angle. So, Peter, you know, we might have, you know, a less confrontational tone about many things, trade yeah. among them, and yeah. we might see uh, America reenter the Paris Climate Accord. That's right, yeah. We might see, you know, even even additional help for middle-class Americans. Um, there's this other note that you read about, which is, you know, we could also just have, like, somewhat of a return to normal. Can you remind me what normal even looks like? In 30 seconds, though, Peter It's been Coley. a long time. It's been a long time, hasn't it? I'm, I'm just saying that, uh, you know, that, but Trump was, has been a chaos president. Even people who uh, support him say that. It's not just yeah. coming. So is that, uh, in, in some ways, that's his M.O., and it, he thought it worked for him. Uh, Biden is not that kind of person. He's uh, middle of the road. He's a person with gravitas. So I would expect some more calm coming in the next four years. Yeah, a little, little namaste for everyone who's out there. I'm just going to put it out there. All right, Peter Coy. Um, like I said, we always learn something when we talk to you. Bloomberg Economics Editor Peter Coy on the phone in New Jersey. Joel Weber, Editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the Remote Access from Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. So 4,000 people walk out at noon on January 20th and 
not 4,000 walk-in, let's say several hundred walk-in, because it takes time to process people. It's taking control of, um, you know, 100 federal agencies, uh, national security, homeland security. Um, there's a lot of things that have to happen, and it has to happen seamlessly. Yeah, that was from our conversation Friday with Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration. He's now a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. He was, Chris, was executive director of Barack Obama's 2008 transition team. So he understands what it's like when there is the changing of the guard. And that really is our top story at this hour about a Biden White House, but also about the changing of the guard in the White House as President Trump uh, is expected to be gone come January, of course and Joe Biden and his team go in in January. There's a lot going on. So let's bring in Bloomberg News politics editor Wendy Benjaminson on the phone from Washington, D.C. So, Wendy, we're going to talk about what a Biden White House looks like because we know we're getting more and more on that. But, man, what a Monday. What a weekend. What a weekend, huh? (laughs) Did you sleep at all? Um, a little bit last night, maybe for the first time in, in a week. But yeah, no, it's it was it's all great. It's always exciting to, you know, be part of history, and that's one of the what, what happened over the weekend. Well, it does certainly feel like, and today's an interesting one. I feel like we are talking a lot more about what a Biden White House looks like ultimately. But before we do that, we had some changes in the Trump administration. Mark Esper is out. Yes, it appears that um, that. President Donald Trump by tweet fired Esper, the defense secretary, and replaced him with someone who works at a different national security agency, Chris Miller, and um, it's not, we're not even sure that's possible, um, but it's all very, you know, reminiscent of um, of the last four years. I mean, um, mm. Esper, Secretary Esper did not go along and publicly did not go along with Trump's um, request for the invoking of the Insurrection Act, which would allow the U.S. military to operate against Americans on American soil. Um, It's rarely used. I think the last time, I mean, it came up during the Civil War, obviously. Um, But the... um, uh, but he refused to go along with that and put out a statement saying so. And I guess um, the president was waiting until to see what the election was, but decided to fire him anyway. Does this happen a lot? I mean, after, let's say, there's an incumbent um, loses his second term or even someone in their second term, do they tend to, to start to clean house and make changes at this point in the game? No. They, <laughs> the people in that was not job, an easy setup. It was a really pure, naive question. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what's normal is that these people, you know, they see the writing on the wall. They're yeah. highly professional, highly sought after people. They know there's going to be a lot of competition, and they all start looking for jobs on their own. Um, traditionally, the the White House does um, it. The incoming administration asks for a lot of holdovers, resignations, and then decides to rehire the ones it wants to rehire. That's usually when the same party takes over. Mm-hmm. But no, the president doesn't usually fire people that they know are going to be out in 70 days anyway. Yeah. Well, what what do you think is going on? Or what do you hear? I shouldn't say think. What are you hearing in terms of what's going on in the Trump White House right now? We certainly are We're all reading in over the weekend about kind of some tensions between people in terms of how they thought the president should should move forward from here. And I do I am curious about the outlying kind of legal questions uh, concerning the counting of votes. Right. So that process continues. And Mm. this is a process that, you know, Republicans say and, and a lot of people seem to agree that he has every right 
to ask for a recount. He has every right to make sure all the ballots are counted. But anyone who looks at the numbers objectively sees that there are not enough left outstanding ballots for him to make up the difference. He is down by at least 5 million votes right now across the country. And in key states, even where it's close, there are not enough votes outstanding to to uh, change the outcome of the election. Um, and even Republican secretaries of state in the states are the people who run the elections in the states are saying there is no or no evidence of widespread voting irregularities and nothing that would change the outcome. So there's a lot of people in the president's inner circle who are saying, you know, we're going to fight this out and we're going to file all these lawsuits. And Rudy Giuliani was at some landscaping company in Philadelphia holding a news conference. And yet there are people in his inner circle saying, okay, it's over. You lost. Let's go. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that landscaping company, um, I think it was one of the most, uh, uh, something that was getting an awful lot of buzz over on social media, certainly over the weekend and and, uh, certainly today. Hey, so I do wonder, what about those Senate races? So that we've got to wait a little bit longer, correct, to get the outcome? Yes. Um, this happens in a lot of southern states, particularly where if someone doesn't get 50% of the vote, the top two finishers then go to a runoff. And um, in this case, uh, we have to wait till January 5th. And the outcome of those does depend, does I mean, the the party control of the Senate does depend on the outcome of those races. So um, there's a lot of uh, nervous people. There's probably a lot of money going down to Georgia. Um, There's going to be a big fight. But Georgia, even though it looks like Biden won Georgia, Mm. it's a pretty conservative state overall, and it really could be that, um, that they will end up voting for Republican senators. But it's anybody's guess right now. So what does this all mean for, right, so we've got, we've got to wait to see who actually is in control of the Senate. Um, and I do wonder if you're getting any indications of how quickly some kind of stimulus measures, whether it's before January, do we have to wait till after January? What are we getting on that front? Because I feel like that's the second leg to the COVID-19 news that we got today from Pfizer that will kind of give some support and lift, certainly to the economy. I just got about 30 seconds, then we'll come back and do some more. Sure, that's a very good point. Um Anybody's guess. I mean, there are Democratic senators that are saying, okay, we see the direction the country's going. Let's, let's get a stimulus bill. Uh, Mitch McConnell is having a, uh, availability today. We'll see what he says. But my guess is the mood isn't there among Republicans. All right, Wendy. I know you guys, you have all been over it, all on it in terms of looking at what a Biden White House looks like. So let's go through some of the names. I mean, is it going to be kind of like Obama 2.0? In some ways it is. There will be very familiar faces. Um, there will be familiar names. Um, it won't be a complete, uh, you know, retread. He's picking a lot of different people. And he's picking people who had slightly, you know, who were maybe undersecretaries in the Obama administration who will now rise to the front of it. He is also committed, or not committed, but he is also, we think, planning to make history with some of his cabinet choices, putting women in at defense and treasury, two cabinet agencies that have yet to see, see a woman at the top. Can I just say, reading this story over the weekend, I was like blown away. I'm like, wait, a woman, a woman, a woman. <laughs> like, you know, is that Joe Biden? Is that his team? Is that Kamala Harris or a little bit of all of it? A little bit of all of it, but I think it's, I think a lot of it is Joe Biden. But one mm. thing to keep in mind is that The names floating around for chief of staff, for the people who will be closest to Biden in the White House, just like under Obama, 
are going to be, uh, you know, largely white men from what we can tell. So there will be the counselors to the president, the domestic policy chief, the the chief of staff, those sort of jobs that, um, you know, these are just people who are talented and experienced and um, uh, and in their jobs and they happen to be white men. But then, right. um, but you don't need to make but very they don't become household names either. But. You know, a defense secretary, Michelle Flournoy, is at the top of the list for that, or Treasury Secretary Leo Brainerd. That's a big, splashy thing. Those are very high-profile people who will become household names, and they're women. Yeah, it's really, really distinct. And um, doesn't it really feels like, if you think about, in many ways, Wendy, the year that we've had, right, and just dealing with the dual pandemic, of course, the virus, but also of we talk so much about systemic racism and the inequities and the inequalities when we look around, you know, much of corporate America and really still in the political world. So it looks like, you know, this could be a very big step forward. I don't know, am I over saying it? Or is that what it is, potentially? Um, I think it could be. I mean, these are white women um, in, in some of yeah. these jobs, although Kamala Harris is the vice president, and that's big history making. But I, I do think it, it does address some of the inequities that uh, that women have seen where they're, they are stymied. I mean, a woman at defense has been hard to do because it's always been traditional that the person would have military experience. And there just haven't been a lot of women who have risen up in the uh, in the military yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but the um, but Michelle Flournoy um, was a was the highest ranking woman in the Pentagon uh, during the Obama administration, and I think she ran either the budget or procurement or something. Where um, I'm sorry, I don't have that at my fingertips, but um, it, okay. she she's. Um, perfectly qualified for this job. Yeah, I mean, served in the military. what does it tell, does it give us an idea of what kind of administration, what kind of policies might, you know, and what kind of actions we might see from the get-go once uh, Biden and his team step into the White House? Well, I think a lot of it is going to depend on Senate control. Biden mm-hmm. is going to um, uh, first name the White House jobs that the people that actually work in the White House, his top aides, um, those don't need Senate confirmation. Those are at the uh, they serve at the pleasure of the president and the president only. So I think he's going to probably try to start with those jobs first, um, and then partly because he wants to be careful and take his time, and partly because we don't know what the Senate. Mm-hmm. confirmation process will be like, I think then he's going to, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, begin to roll out some names of cabinet members. And I think if there, if it looks like there's going to be Democratic control of the Senate, he might go a little further left than he would if he had to face Mitch. If, he, if this person has to get through Mitch McConnell, right. then, you know, they, they may be more moderate. What's the role of Kamala Harris, his vice president-elect, in helping shape this team? Well, he has said that she will have the same privilege that he had under President Obama, which is that she will be the last person in the room giving advice. And if if he is true to that promise to her, then I see no reason why he wouldn't be. There's um, then she should have a, a pretty big say in things. Hey, one last question, and I always love kind of the, the what's going on behind closed doors. At this point, President-elect Biden, is he getting all the briefings um, or the key ones when it comes to security, when it comes to the virus, as does Donald Trump, the president? Well, he is getting his own virus briefings from the coronavirus task force that he named today. Mm -hmm. Many of these people were were already advising him on the campaign. He named 13 more today, and they are going to turn his campaign promises on the virus into policy. Um, In terms of security briefings, he's been getting those ever since he was the nominee. 
Okay. All right. That's how it works. Hey, good stuff as always. Thank you so much, uh, Wendy. We know you're, you guys are busy and the whole team in D.C., so thank you so much for carving out some time for us. Bloomberg News Politics Editor Wendy Benjaminson. Go check out all of the D.C. coverage. Uh, you can find it at Bloomberg.com. Wendy, of course, joining us from the nation's capital. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Monday. Abhi Deshpande is back with us, founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors, joining us on the phone in Connecticut. Abhi, it's so nice to have you here with us. Um, I was trying to remember, was it the last time we talked with you was in March? Hey, Carol, good to be here. Uh, yeah, I think you and I spoke last in March. I've been on the show a couple of times since then. Um, oh. Maybe like, I haven't maybe been it, around. It could be a month or two. No, you weren't there. You were someplace else. <laughs> so how so how are you? And and what's kind of changed in terms of the market environment? Uh, big week last week in terms of the election. We're still waiting the outcome of who is in control of the Senate. But how do you look at this market environment? We've seen a little bit of a rotation today. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at our, our uh, Thunderstone funds right now. We have stocks that are up 30 percent for 25 percent a day you know but then i i do remember acutely days in march when some of these same stocks were down 25 percent a day so the um the moves have been kind of extreme um it's uh i think the environment is for us it's it's um you know it's it's this is a kind of environment that value stocks should do well in where especially international we focus on mostly non-us and um, there's that we, you know, there are so many tailwinds now that we did not have. Um, and ironically enough, the um, COVID response, the fiscal response globally to COVID has been um, a great, uh, has a great deal to play in that or has mm-hmm. had a great deal to play in that. So for us, um, I think we're, we're doing, we're sitting in a in sort of a sweet spot. Um, that said, you know, we, we were not, I mean, for most of the year or maybe even like the last two or three years, it's just recently that things have started uh, to turn in our favor. So what does that mean in terms of strategy? Do you kind of hold, I mean, one month, I'm looking at the one month performance and you guys are in, I think the 96th percentile, at least according to Bloomberg data. Um, so what does it mean in terms of strategy? Do you double down? Do you sit tight? And you think, because, you know, it's interesting when you talk about the value trade, I feel like everybody keeps saying, okay, now it's it's the time, it's the time. But as I heard David Weston say on Bloomberg Radio earlier, you know, if I had, you know, a nickel for every time somebody said, okay, now it's the time for value value names, I'd be pretty wealthy, but it doesn't happen. So, you know, what do you think will be the lasting trade here? Or is it going to be tough to tell until we get the new administration kind of settled and we get a better feel of what new policies might come down? Um, I, well, the, I mean, you kind of nailed it, right? I mean, how, how long have value people been saying, oh, it's, <laughs> you know, it's been this many years. Sorry, value people. And, you know, and uh, I saw a really interesting, uh, a, uh, some interesting figures the other day. It said that from the trailing one day to one week to one year, going out 33 years, growth has outperformed value. So, and so that, yeah. that's, I, I don't know, there are a lot of things that sort of point to an extreme um, but that, that's what these moments are made of. 
I, you know, I just kind of separate like, yeah, we're value investors, but, you know, I really consider our, ourselves more like common sense investors. <laughs> and that seems to come and go out of fashion. But um, when you're basing it on, you know, intrinsic value of an actual business rather than like what some opinion is of something, um, you know, we found more often than not that over time, we, you know, we end up doing just fine. It's that time element that really is unpredictable. That could be a year, it could be five years. You just never know. And this this one's been a long time. So, I think it's what what will transpire for us um, at Centerstone will be more more uh, related to how the businesses perform mm-hmm. rather than what like some other policy or who's in the Senate or whatever. We, we kind of like look past all that stuff. Are you still all in on gold? Yeah, we do own some gold. Uh, I, I see today has taken a big hit. Um, mm-hmm. The fundamental kind of case for gold still remains. I mean, I'm pretty sure the Fed has said like 17 times now that they're not going to raise interest rates until the unemployment rates back down to where it was, particularly for the minority class. And that's going to take some time. So you can can have a period of time where we have inflation popping up, which it's going to do soon, with low rates and low negative, or sorry, negative interest rates, they tend to be good for the for gold and uh, not so great for the dollar. So in our funds, we're, um, and this may be kind of a popular thing to say these days. So we're, we're, you know, exposed to foreign equities. Um, we're foreign exposed uh, to foreign currencies and we do have some gold in place just in case. Um, that has been with me in this fund or where, you know, other funds that I've managed for you know, a couple of decades now, it's not, not a new thing. So, um, the case for it remains the same as it was, in, 20 years ago, um, and and uh, but you know it'll face it. It has its own cycle, so it, it'll go up and down on its own. Hey, before we go, you know, how should we as investors kind of think about the international play? I am curious. You know, we highlighted before some of the world leaders that are coming out and congratulating a Biden Harris administration. Um, there are some that we pointed out uh, that have been pretty quiet, including the leader of China. So I do wonder, how do we as um, investors kind of think about the international investment play, the global you know, investment play as a result of a new administration, especially since you do invest overseas? Some thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, thankfully, right now, I don't, it really comes down to just cyclical behavior and of these economies, which are all turning around. Um, and, you know, fiscal policies, which have become very, very positive, or at least pro-cyclical now in Europe, especially, um, and valuations from a period starting, the starting point, you know, the, the valuations overseas are, are you know, a, not a, not an immaterial discount to what you have in the United States because of this blow up in the tech uh, industry here. So the valuation cases there, you got the fiscal head, uh, fiscal tailwinds, you got monetary policy in place, um, you know, pro, you know, pro investor management teams um, in, in markets that have just been depressed for for going on three years now. So, I think personally that there is this. This part is the opinion part of me, not the fact part of me. Okay. The opinion part of me says that we're due for a long, long period of outperformance now, um, yeah. with many things in our back. 
All right. Well, time will certainly tell. Abe, good to check in with you. Abe Deshpande, founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors, based in uh, New York, but he was joining us on the phone in Connecticut on this Monday. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Bloomberg Global News.